Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. The nursing shortage in the U.S. has been a long-standing issue. Many baby boomers are poised for retirement and the demand for health care increases. But pandemic-era stressors have exacerbated things. One workforce report found more than 100,000 registered nurses or RNs left between 2020 and 2021. Many were under 35 or employed in hospitals. Today on Where We Live, we take a look at renewed efforts to address this crisis. Nurses with AFT Connecticut, the largest union of acute care hospital workers, spoke at a press conference yesterday at the Capitol with state and federal lawmakers, stressing a need for action around staffing and patient safety. Let's take a listen to one of them. I want to share a little bit of my story. I already told you that my goal was to be a nurse, and that's all I ever dreamed about from the time I was in preschool, like three years old. And I succeeded at that. But over the last five years, I've decided that I can't do this anymore. I can't. I I can't run around with eight to one patients. I can't make the new goal to keep them alive just until the end of my shift. So I went back to school to get my master's so I can leave acute care, not because I don't love my job, not because I don't love being a nurse. It's because bathroom breaks are difficult. It's because lunch breaks only happen about 50% of the time, if that. It's because I'm going to be 49 this year and doing a 16-hour shift being mandated against my will to stay to do that 16-hour shift is very difficult. That was Sherry Dayton, an RN at Bacchus Hospital and president of her union, the Bacchus Federation of Nurses. Joining us now to discuss one legislative proposal already aimed at solutions is Senator Saud Anwar. He's a Democratic state senator and co-chair of the Public Health Committee. Thanks, Senator, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Senator, you were at yesterday's press conference with U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal and announced a legislative proposal that would mandate nurse-to-patient staffing ratios at the state and federal levels. Can you walk us through what that looks like? Absolutely. First, we have to recognize that uh, the current status quo is not going to be acceptable. It is not safe for our patients. It's not safe for our nurses. And uh, this is uh, something that is going to have so much harm to the healthcare and the well-being for the sickest in our state. So with that in mind, we feel it's important to look at it in a two-pronged approach. One of the prongs of our approach is going to be primarily to make sure that we take care of the immediate needs of the safety and well-being of our nurses and make sure we are able to retain the existing nurses. And that's a bill which uh, we are proposing in the Public Health Committee, which is a a safe staffing bill, along with a nurses' safety bill. 
so that's a, a component that we have to address right now. And then we have to have a comprehensive strategy going forward, which is going to look at a healthcare workforce bill, which is going to have a long-term strategy to be able to train more nurses, recruit more nurses and retain more nurses because, uh, and, and all the healthcare workers, this is a crisis in our state, which is uh, uh, moving in the direction that if we don't intervene, it will become a disaster. So you and I have had conversations throughout the pandemic on this exact topic. And it seems like this is something that's really coming, bubbling into the surface where everyone's talking about it. You mentioned that it's harmful now for a lot of the nurses working. Can you talk about what does that exactly mean for those who may not be familiar with that space? Absolutely. Um, look, um, first of all, healthcare is challenging. The patients who are coming to the hospitals, more and more, they are sicker than before. Um, in the past, uh, people used to come to the hospital even if they had a mild to moderate illness. Now we are trying to manage more of our patients in the um, outpatient setting. And as a result, uh, we are seeing sicker ones coming in the inpatient setting. And uh, these patients uh, obviously need a lot more uh, direct hands-on management. They need support. At times, they do not have... Uh, uh, they get confused, they get agitated, and, and they may be physically abusive towards uh, the uh, healthcare providers, the nursing staff, and the nurses' aides. And at times, these individuals also are somewhat heavy if they are at a risk of falling. The nurses are trying to help pick them up and, and take care of them, which is a direct physical trauma to them, along with the emotional trauma in some of the situations. The other thing is the medications are very complex. We need to make sure that the patients are getting the medicine at the right time, the right dosages, and we need to have multiple checks on that. If the ratios are not appropriate, if there's not enough support, that results in the risk of medical errors increasing. The risk, of course, the patients who are there are much more sicker. If they don't have the right care, their risk of getting worse is much, much more likely. And, and that's why we see the death rates higher when the nursing ratios are not appropriate. And, and I can keep going about the, the decubitus ulcers or the pressure ulcers that the patients get. Their readmission rates are higher. The nurse's well-being is impacted because uh, this is a calling. And when a nurse takes so much of their life and work to try and make a difference in the lives of patients, and they feel that they are unable to provide all the care that the patient deserves, it, does, it results in an unhappiness in their profession. And we are seeing that. And they are voting with their feet by walking away from that profession. I've spoken with so many healthcare workers throughout the pandemic, and you've really nailed it. That's what everyone has said, really, who have spoken with me, that this is a calling. And I know this is early days. This was just sort of announced yesterday. But where does this bill stand? And do you know who has signed on? What kind of support have you been seeing? Um, this is going to be a bill from the Public Health Committee. So it's a committee bill. And um, I, I can uh, share with you that I'm very hopeful that uh, it will pass from our committee. And then we look forward to having conversations and a public hearing to directly hear and listen to the challenges that uh, the nursing staff and all the other healthcare workers have been experiencing. And, and that is going to hopefully mobilize more and move more of my legislator friends across the entire spectrum, whether they're in the Senate or House, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, 
to recognize that healthcare is not a partisan issue. The, the, the care and support for our staff who are giving their, their well-being to make sure that their patients are safe is not a partisan issue. And I'm very hopeful that a lot of people will sign on and be supportive of this. So the Connecticut Hospital Association released a statement in response to yesterday's press conference, and they said, while there is a lot to be done to expand and support the nursing workforce, nurse-to-patient ratios would harm patient care and exacerbate existing stressors. A spokesperson also told our health reporter, Sujata Srinivasan, that if hospitals can't meet government-mandated nurse-staffing ratios, on inpatient floors, they would be forced to close beds, and that would back up care in the ER. Senator, can you respond to that? It, it's a uh, it's an important conversation that we need to have. Um, look, we will need to get all the stakeholders around the table. Um, the The reason the hospitals are struggling is also because uh, the hospitals are expected to. Uh, provide care to everyone who walks into the hospital. And then we are seeing the emergency rooms back up. We also know that the hospitals are not getting paid the right amount at times. If you look at the insurance companies, many of them, they, they, they claim that they're doubled their profits in the last year. The fact that the insurance industry is doing well, the hospitals are not doing as well as the insurance industry is. So we need to make sure that everybody gets around this table to have a conversation about the sustainability of the process. We, I want to also mention that Medicaid hasn't improved in their payments. So the state is also partly responsible for this. And, and that is precisely the reason I feel that we will need to get all the stakeholders together and, and come out of that meeting with everybody unhappy. Because uh, uh, right now, we just cannot have the healthcare workforce, the nurses be unhappy and, and, and the others uh, somewhat happier than they are. And we need to get everybody to share in this pain to make sure that we create a healthy, sustainable work environment for our nurses and all the other healthcare workers, too. And can you share with us some of the findings in the recent study from AFT, which is a union that represents many healthcare workers in our state? How is that going to inform this legislative process or legislative proposal? Um, you know, the, the most shocking thing uh, that I uh, was really, and, and actually we, I see it as well as a physician, is that uh, almost uh, one out of, the, uh, the, there one out of five people have already quit and the ones who are actually uh, are remaining, they're thinking of leaving. And before the pandemic, if I was to look at the intensive care unit, so many of the nurses that we worked with and, and cried with and, and were up all night taking care of the patients, they are no longer working in the intensive care unit. They're burnt out. And when you interact with them, you see the pain. You see uh, a, a, a sort of a post-traumatic stress when you see the ARDS and the complex respiratory failure patients in the nursing staff. So we know that they have been hurting. And, and, and we see that in the report as well, that the people are actually moving to other professions. They're choosing to do other things which are safer and then also perhaps more rewarding than what nursing has become. So the report tells us exactly what I have seen in, in the ground myself, uh, interacting with the nursing staff, interacting with the, the leadership of the nurses in the hospitals. Um, so that's something that we are seeing, but they're also talking about uh, the opportunities about how we should look at uh, to fix this. I, I, I wanna give you an example. 
And I think uh, Sherry's and others had spoken to that uh, yesterday, is that if somebody has worked for 12 hours, and then they're said that you have to ask to work for another six hours, and, and, and give 100% attention to them, and while their family members need them at the same time, and, and this happens on a regular basis, this is unsafe for anyone. And then we have to identify ways to fix this. And, and, and this cannot be fixed. We are, we are sort of moving in a spiral that if we don't intervene collectively, this is going to have more people, more nurses leave healthcare field. The report basically tells us all of these things in, in the, from the stories that we hear from the nurses directly. I'm really glad that you mentioned you are a a physician yourself. Apologies for that. Um, And can you share some of your firsthand experience as a doctor who you you specialize in critical care medicine? This seems to be an obvious question, but why is this so important to move forward today? Um, I, I mentioned this, and I believe it in my heart, that a good nurse is the difference between life and death of a patient. We as physicians are there for a much lesser time, but the nurse is there for eight or 12 hours right next to that patient. They know the families much more than physicians and other team members do. They also know um, if the patient's needs or healthcare or vital signs are changing, and they are the ones who actually identify a problem before it becomes very obvious. And if they are unable to put their full dedication to the right number of patients that have been identified, they are at a risk of missing something. And and, uh, I see this firsthand by, because uh, on a weekend, sometimes I have uh, nursing staff uh, that are seeing uh, three, four patients in the ICU. Now, I know some of the patients are uh, not necessarily as sick, so they are able to survive that. But if they are very sick, it gets very challenging and and very stressful. One patient who is critical, uh, you you walk in the room and it'll be four hours before you actually can look up. And because you're trying to do everything that you can with the team of all the staff to resuscitate and support and help them. And and if we don't have the right team who is able to give 100% attention, that can change the outcomes. Senator, I know you have to go soon, but I do want to get one more question is we understand that Waterbury State Representative Michael DiGiovancarlo has also pushed for a bill that would enforce staffing ratios according to the type of unit or specialty. Is this on your radar or would your bill be similar or different? Can you share with us what's, what's that looking like right now? Sure. So, so with respect to the ratios, I think the way to approach this is to make sure that every hospital team, the leadership team and, and the nursing team, along with the nursing s- staff, the, the and, and I want to say nursing staff, I mean the nurses who are providing hands-on care to the patients. Because even in the administration, even in the non-clinical part of the hospitals, there are nurses there and people say, well, they are nurses, so they are able to make the decision. I feel that the nurses who are providing the hands-on care should be part of the team, minimum 50% of a a group that would be uh, in the hospital staffing committee. And, and with that staffing committee, the hospital and the nurses combine together to identify the best ratios at the different levels of the uh, system, if you will, because the ratios would be different in the intensive care unit, 
and much different in the step-down unit and much more different in the units that are uh, where the severity of the illness is not that bad. So we need to identify the ratios of the nurses, but also the assisting staff and, and then agree to it and then and make sure that the Department of Public Health is informed about those ratios, which people have agreed to, and then and align and follow them together so that we can have a sustainable system where hospitals are not being harmed, but the more importantly, the nurses are not being harmed. And we can do this rather than having a, a very strong top-down strategy to say, this is what the ratios are going to be. I think if we don't get all the people together in a room and they don't come up with a solution, we may need a top-down solution. But I think if we create a collaborative strategy of a hospital staffing committees working together, we are more likely to be successful. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Catherine Shen. You've been listening to State Senator Saud Anwar. He is pushing for legislation that would mandate nurse-to-patient staffing levels in Connecticut. Thank you so much for your time today, Senator. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Catherine, for having me. Coming up, we'll dig deeper into this workforce shortage and hear recommendations from the National Nurse Staffing Think Tank with the American Association of Critical Care Nurses. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter or join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're hearing about what's being called a patient care crisis in Connecticut and some of the efforts to help frontline workers. Before our next guest helps us put this crisis in context, we should note that Hartford HealthCare's Chief Nursing Officer, Mary Ellen Kosterko, provided a statement to Connecticut Public Radio saying, we have immense gratitude and take tremendous pride in our nurses and the significant role they play in the lives of so many patients every day. The statement also notes they have a robust recruitment and retention strategy, reduced cost educational opportunities, and a nursing peer support 24-hour hotline. Our next guest is Vicki Good. She's a past president of the American Association of Critical Care Nurses and a member of the National Nurse Staffing Think Tank. Thanks so much, Vicki, for joining us today. Thanks, Catherine. 
You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Vicki, can you help us understand this shortage? And tell me about where things stood before the pandemic. So I think we were headed into um, a shortage prior to the pandemic, and certainly the pandemic was what many of us have called an accelerant to um, part of the issues that we're facing. Um, the nursing shortage is multi-pronged, um, you know, starting with the fact that we do have an aging population, including the aging population of our nursing um, teams that are are looking at retirement. So as baby boomers start to retire, we see that happening. But unfortunately, what we're also seeing is that many of the baby boomers um, are retiring earlier than expected, but we're also seeing a very disturbing trend where um, a lot of our younger nurses who came into the profession are exiting uh, very quickly due to many of the factors in the work environment. Um, I think another um, pronged issue on this is the challenges that our nursing schools are facing across the United States. Many of them, um, it's very driven by the geographical area of the United States, but um, some schools of nursing can't get enough um, qualified applicants into the program, whereas other areas of the country have more than adequate number of applicants, but they don't have enough faculty to um, teach those students. So there's a tremendous faculty shortage as well um, in the nursing profession. There's also a challenge with having enough clinical spots for these students to go to learn. Um, you know, learning nursing is a unique profession in that you do need to have that clinical experience during training um, to put out a competent nurse. So all of these factors create this perfect storm, and this perfect storm, unfortunately, is leaving us with you know fewer nurses at the bedside, and the the pandemic like I said before, really was that accelerant to many of these uh, nurses leaving the profession. So you just listed so many things that I think would make so many shows, and I'm thinking we can probably talk for days just on this, but because you mentioned education, and, and that seems to be what connects so many issues that we're talking about today, not just with healthcare, but can you explain more about this larger pipeline problem? You mentioned capacity issues. Does it relate to students are able to get their degrees or perhaps go to school, but not being able to get that really crucial uh, real-life experience with nurses on, on site. Are, are these the concerns, and can you help us break it down and understand what's going on there? Yeah, and it's a, <clears throat> a two-factor issue. One factor is, is that you have to have the clinical placements or clinical spots in hospitals to do the training, and those are becoming fewer um, because of the shortage in the hospital. So it's a cyclical problem where I've got to have nurses in the hospital to precept or teach those um, you know, student nurses. And then the second element is you have to have, generally speaking, depending on your state, between six to eight students per faculty member in the clinical setting. And that becomes a heavy burden for schools of nursing to employ that many nurses to um, educate those, those nurses. The faculty shortage has been around for a while. Um, and if you look at the aging population of an acute care nurse or a hospital nurse, compare that to a faculty, 
the age difference is quite different. It's usually about five to 10 years older than a bedside nurse. And so the universities and colleges are being hit with retirements, um, you know, in their professors. The pay is much different um, and much lower um, for faculty than it is for bedside nurses. And then lastly, there's a, you know, educational component. So most universities or colleges require a master's or a doctorate to teach in their program. And, you know, there's a lot less people going forward for that advanced education. And so it seems to be a mixture of shortages and a mixture of too many students almost. And you mentioned uh, bedside nursing. And we understand how the pandemic might have exacerbated these strains. But can you also help us understand um, there is a recent trend that a lot of nurses are moving away from bedside nursing. And what do we mean by bedside? Bedside is generally defined as somebody that is taking care of a patient in the hospital setting in that 24-7 unit. So whether or not that's a medical surgical unit or an intensive care unit, progressive care unit. Um, so the bedside nurse is that one that is with that patient 24-7. And so can you help us understand why is there a move away from bedside nursing as a more recent trend that's been happening? Well, again, there's not one given reason. Um, I think if there was one given reason, it would be a lot easier to uh, solve this this dilemma that we're in. But the think tank, we really focused, the national think tank on nurse staffing, we really focused on that question is how do we retain nurses at the bedside to be able to um, address this nursing staffing crisis that we have? And there's several things that we've looked at, and there were six primary recommendations from the think tank that really speak to this. So I kind of want to go down that path. Uh, the first one was the health of the work environment in general. So we have seen a decline in the health of the work environment for quite a while. And the pandemic, again, was just kind of like that accelerant on um, some of the challenges that we were seeing the other thing that we're seeing is a stress injury continuum that nurses are um, experiencing. And our, the physician talked about this earlier, where, you know, nurses are facing physical and psychological safety issues that I've never seen in my 30 plus year career. Some of those physical, you know, issues include physical injury from violent patients, violent family members. Um, you've seen the safety concerns in the media with, you know, recent shootings, et cetera. And then the psychological safety of, of handling the stresses that they deal with on a day-in, day-out basis. Um, during the pandemic, there was nurses that reported seeing more death than they'd ever seen in their entire career within a short span of time. So the stress injury continuum becomes a very big challenge we have to look at what is our flexibility with work schedules. We've traditionally done a 12-hour shift schedule, and is that the right schedule? I don't have the answer to that, but I think our nurses are telling us maybe we need to be doing something different with our scheduling. We've got to be more um, inclusive as far as diversity, inclusive, and, and equity within our workforce. How do we encourage um, that diversity within our students within our profession 
and how do we draw in those students? The other thing we have to look at is our care delivery model. <clears throat> We've been using the same care delivery model for years. Um, and that generally is driven by some sort of a ratio. But how should that care delivery model look different um, in 2023 and moving forward with all of the technology that we now have, with the artificial intelligence that we now have? What does that care delivery model need to look like in the future? And then lastly, we've got to look at what does that total compensation package look like for a nurse? It goes beyond what is the hourly rate, hourly wage, sorry, um, that a nurse receives. What does a nurse want? Um, you know, many of our nurses are telling us it goes beyond that. I need help with childcare. I need help with housing. Many cities, the housing market has outpaced um, salaries tremendously. And so how how can we get innovative with how we pay our staff? So those are some of the fundamental things that the think tank really focused on um, in addressing this crisis. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the think tank because I, I did want to ask too, you know, how did you and the other members who are involved in the think tank envision this report and the kind of rubric of takeaways that might be used? You know, we spent several um several, several meetings, you know, really digesting what was going on in the environment. Um, I think the other unique thing with the think tank is it involved bedside nurses, it involved administrators, it involved professional organizations. So we really tried to take a holistic view of this and, and you know, not look at just one single factor or one single voice um, in the, the problem. So we wanted to look at it from a holistic perspective um, and not offer just one particular solution. Before our listeners, just want to remind everyone that there is a link to the Think Tank Takeaways on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live. Um, we're going to now turn to Paul Benock, and he's an ICU travel nurse for from Connecticut who is a member of CT Nurses United, a group of non-union nurses who have connected through their Instagram account, collecting harrowing and mostly anonymous testimonials. Hi, Paul. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, good morning. I'm so excited to talk to you. So talk to us about the momentum behind CT Nurses United. How many nurses are you speaking with through this Instagram account? Um, so the Instagram account started about six months ago, and uh, it has over 7,000 followers now. And you can go on Instagram and search CT Nurses United and read stories from nurses um, working in hospitals across Connecticut um, to see what's really happening on the ground in healthcare right now. When it sounds like what you just described, is, is Senator Saud Anwar has mentioned earlier, and um, our just our previous conversations, those seems to be echoing each other. Can you tell me a little bit about what led you to rally at the Capitol just months after this account got started? Um, I think, uh, you know, the rally happened organically because nurses are so motivated to do anything to make a difference. Um, the conditions are just, um, they're they are so desperate, and that's why people are leaving. And I want to make a couple points about the um, safe staffing legislation that we're seeing pop up in Connecticut. So for Connecticut, it is, I do not believe it's a pipeline problem. We have um, one of the highest density of nursing schools in Connecticut, putting out more nursing students than ever, and they have qualified applicants lined up. So um, we do need to expand access to education, and we can put out more nursing students. 
but that means nothing if you're not retaining nurses in the field. In Connecticut, there are over 86,000 licensed nurses in Connecticut, and only 40,000 are practicing as nurses. So I do not believe it's a pipeline issue. I believe it's a retention issue. And you can get anecdotal evidence from, you know, from any nurse. Look at, you know, my colleagues from nursing school. Most of them have left the profession or they've gone down to advanced degrees. My advanced degree is not in nursing because I, I personally cannot continue at this pace um, or continue to witness the, the neglect and um, poor care that happens due to, due to understaffing. I think, unfortunately, this is not the first time we're hearing something like this. Can you share with us what are you hearing from nurses in other states who are also organizing as well? Um, so there's, uh, you know, across the country, nurses are organizing. We just saw this large strike in New York City where um, New York City nurses won safe staffing ratios. Um, once again, I just want to, you know, put the point that I don't I don't I also don't believe this is a cost issue. The United States spends more on health care than than any other um, high income country. And we get worse outcomes. We spend significantly more on health care. So this isn't about this isn't about money. It's about where money is prioritized. And right now, you know, look who's winning in healthcare. It's healthcare executives making millions of dollars. It's pharmaceutical companies. It's insurance companies. Um, you know, there's a there's a lot of holes where we're losing money in healthcare, and we're trying. You know, safe staffing legislation would help prioritize money back to patient care to keep patients safe. And we're seeing safe staffing legislation pop up in other states, um, including Massachusetts, Washington State. Oregon and Connecticut. And so I, I've i been seeing this a lot in terms of social media has been playing such a huge role in many of these movements. And many nurses, as from this platform, are now speaking with you as well as the media under the condition of anonymity or just sharing their first names. Can you explain why is this such an important condition for nurses and why speaking out might be uniquely difficult? Speaking out is difficult because there's a power dynamic, especially for nurses who are not unionized. Um, so, you know, Hartford Hospital is not unionized on either St. Francis or Yale. So if you speak out against your employer, you're at risk of being fired for any reason. And the reality of being a nurse these days is that every day you are asked to do more than what you can physically accomplish. So, you know, if you're supposed to be assessing a patient every one hour, but you have too many patients to do that, you know, the hospital could use that as an excuse to fire you, that you didn't complete your duties. Not, none of us can complete all of the duties that are expected of us. So you feel like you're on the chopping block for anything. So, um, and I, I know of three different nurses who have lost their jobs in the past six months um, related to organizing or, or trying to speak out against their employers to improve conditions. And so you've, we've, you and we have heard from State Senator Saul Anwar's uh, legislative proposal, and we also understand that there's also another proposal from Waterbury State Representative Michael Giovancarlo. With these bills sort of flo floating around there um, to make sure that there's safe staffing levels, what are your thoughts about that? What are what's going? What went through your mind when you realized that there are these multiple bills out there ready to go? So I have exciting news. There's actually a third bill. Um, so the there's uh, one representative from Waterbury who announced a safe staffing bill um, last night. Rep uh, representative Luxembourg, Garabee, and uh, Mashinsky also announced a safe staffing legislation bill. 
And then um, we're still waiting on seeing the details of the bill that uh, Senator Anwar was referring to um, in collaboration with AFT. Um, so we have we have evidence of what this legislation can do. If you look at California, they passed this legislation in 2001, and we have been researching the effects of this for the past 20 years. So if you pass safe staffing legislation in Connecticut, you will decrease mortality in the hospital. Patients will get better care. Um, you will improve nurse retention. We see all this data from California. When California fought for safe staffing legislation, the hospital association fought it tooth and nail. Um, and you know what? No hospitals closed due to costs or anything like that. And they found ways to recruit and retain nurses. And because of this legislation, California is the safest place to be in the hospital because you know there's going to be at least a bare you know, a, a bare minimum safety standard for nursing care. In Connecticut, you don't have that. In the emergency department, you know, nurses should not be taking more than four patients. They should not be taking more than two patients if they're critical care patients. But if you go into the Hartford Hospital or the Yale Emergency Department um, and you have a stroke and you need a breathing tube and you're a critical care patient, your nurse is also taking care of two or three or four other patients. So someone gets neglected there. And this is, this is the message nurses are trying to say is we, all we want to do is help people and keep them safe. That is why people become nurses. If you take that away from us, if you take away the opportunity the, to help and we just feel like we're not helping, all we can do is, is maybe keep you alive and, and neglect some others in order to do that, then we have no reason to be doing this job anymore. I want to bring this back to Vicky really quick. Paul mentioned the legislation that happened in, in California, which does have a mandated nurse to patient ratio. Can you uh, talk us through what you what do you think about that? Well, I think um, staffing is multifactorial, and the, there is evidence on both sides of the the fence, if you will, regarding the California mandated ratios, um, some of the evidence shows that there has not been a change in quality of care delivered there. Um, and in some situations, mandated ratios can work against a nurse in that um, some areas may require more nurses than what actually is mandated in the ratio legislation. So I think the, the numeracy of how many nurses need to be present differs from hospital to hospital. It differs from environment to environment. So looking at that, you have to you have to consider the full picture as we move forward. Paul, we got about two more minutes, but would you like to respond to that? Um, sure. I think it's very clear. I mean, it's, it's a very simple issue. You know, if you go into the, 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 the emergency department, do you think you're going to get better care if your nurse has four patients or if your nurse has eight patients? You know, the, it's it's not hard to understand how this research out of California makes sense, because if you have if you have more nursing care, your nurse is there to check in on you more often to make sure everything's going well, to, to check your vitals, to help you get up out of bed so that you can recover and build your strength up, to help you eat so that you can you can recover and build your strength up. These are things that we cannot do any, you know, in, in the conditions that we have right now. So this is this is about prioritizing money in healthcare to patient care to keep patients safe. 
from Connecticut Public Radio. This is where we live. I'm Catherine Shen. You're hearing from Paul Bonock with CT Nurses United and Vicki Good with the American Association of Critical Care Nurses. Thank you both so much for spending time with us today. Coming up, we hear from one nurses union in our state that recently negotiated to ban mandatory overtime. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're hearing about efforts to address what's being called a patient care crisis in Connecticut. Nurses have said that one major factor is having the work mandatory overtime shifts. Joining us to discuss how their union helped negotiate a ban on mandatory overtime is Andrea Riley. She's a registered nurse and president of the Widom Federation of Professional Nurses, AFT Local 5041. Thanks so much, Andrea, for joining us today. Thank you for having me this morning. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Andrea, we've been listening to a lot of things this morning. Thank you so much for your patience. Can you first respond to some of the concerns we've heard this hour? Well, we're all saying the same things, huh? It's it's amazing. And it's it took us exactly one year to the date at the beginning of our negotiations to settle a contract. But at the height of the, the one of the biggest issues, probably the number one issue that took seven months for the hospital to actually move on and hear our voices, as well as an informational picket, was the elimination of mandatory overtime. You know, we saw, and, you know, Dr. Anwar and, and Vicki spoke of this as well, you know, we saw a tremendous reduction in the workforce in 2020. You know, COVID, you know, it's kind of like there was the flame and it ignited it. And that led to the utilize, like utilization of mandatory overtime. And let's be clear, mandatory overtime is a dangerous, complacent, and non-creative tactic to solve, us, uh, to solve a, a, a staffing crisis. And so it, it, the nurses, you know, over the year, it was, they were physically exhausted, sick, it was dangerous care. You know, what do you say to a nurse when their eight-hour shift is done? I'm going to need you to stay another eight hours. It leads not, It's just completely dangerous, and it will lead to detrimental patient outcomes, including death. And can you walk us through how the Wyndham Federation of Nurses recently negotiated a ban on that mandatory overtime with Hartford Healthcare? When did that push start? That push started, we began negotiations in um, December, I believe it was December 4th of 2021. And we had stated, you know, exactly what I had just said, that, you know, the nurses are exhausted. We were in a crisis last winter. We had seen it. And I know, you know, I'm sure Paul, you know, experienced it firsthand as well, where we just had the patient acuity, the volume was insane. We had seen nurses retire. We had nurses leave the bedside. We watched our brand new nurses come into acute care and stay less than a year because of the dangers of, you know, our, our nurse to patient ratios and the acuity of these patients. 
And, you know, we had sat down with the hospital to come up with incentives to try to reduce that. But one of the biggest issues was to essentially at the end of all of this was to eliminate mandatory overtime because it doesn't allow when you when you have the ability to just mandate, you always fall back on that. Right. It doesn't allow for the proper collaboration between the nurse and the hospital to come together and solve the crisis. Paul, he made a statement. We just want to deliver safe care. We want our patients to walk out of this hospital healthy. And if they never walk back in, we've done our jobs, right? It's a wonderful thing. We can't do that if you always fall back on mandatory overtime. We need to work together to solve that. So the nurses pushed really hard and they said, absolutely not. We will not be mandated. You will take this off the table. That took a lot, you know, about six months to go back and forth. And then we finally, you know, with our voices not being heard, had to, we held an informational picket in June. And then the next day they did eliminate mandatory overtime um, from their uh, proposals. So it sounds like no matter what your perspectives are in regards to whether it's policy or legislation, I think there is a general consensus that nursing is a calling and you really want to have to do it. And like you said, if the patient doesn't come back, you've done your job. And so in sort of that kind of perspective and your own involvement, why are unions so critical in forging these sometimes very tough conversations? So unions bring together a collective voice, right? It's that nurse's voice um, in, in this case, you know, or the, you know, it's, it's uh, the union, uh, nurses union at Wyndham. Um, together, you can come forward and you, you listen, you know, you look at this, these public, you know, Paul spoke of this as well, all these forums that are on, you know, um, the internet and it's a beautiful thing and we're all saying the same thing. You realize collectively your voice is stronger and you can come up um, you know, together and say, hey, we're having the same experiences. This is just not secular to to this area. So unions allow you to have a voice in legislation as well as, um, you know, locally as well at your state level. Well, we've got a couple of minutes left, but I just want to ask real quick, you know, speaking of legislations and conversations with these multiple legislative proposals coming out, and I know it's early days, but do you envision any conversations on the table? What are your thoughts about next steps? Um, and- in regards to next steps, it's, um, you know, coming together locally with your AFT and on the, you know, at going to public forums and working together um, to make sure that your voices are heard following the legislation, working together collectively with your unions on the state and the national level, and to continue to work hard to uh, eliminate such things such as mandatory overtime. I will say, you know, you look at the state of California that holds these ratios. I did myself work in the state of California as a nurse, and um, it it works. It works. You know, you, you are able to, you know, deliver care safely because you have a limited number of patients and you're able to actually, you know, Sherry Dayton had said yesterday to go into your room at least once every hour to see that patient and deliver that safe care. You've been listening to Andrea Riley. She's a registered nurse and president of the Wyndham Federation of Professional Nurses, AFT Local 5041. Thank you so much for breaking all that down with us and spending time with us today. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. 